0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 92, House of Cards. The spring of 1919 represented the high-water mark of the Russian Civil War. Never was there a time when everything was on the table, where the previously dominant Bolsheviks were on the back foot and the Whites could conceivably march into the core of Russia and reclaim the old capitals. And in that atmosphere of counter-revolutionary opportunity, nowhere were the Whites more optimistic than the northern Volga River. Admiral Kolchak, the supreme ruler of what was surely destined to be the new old Russia, had watched as his patchwork of armies stormed across the Urals, bringing the Red Army to its knees. By late April 1919, his forces were within a few days' march to Samara and the last natural barrier to Moscow. This would be, however, the last hurrah for the Siberian whites. As I talked about last week, the armies lacked cohesion and most of their officers were green as all hell. When the times were good, they advanced with confidence and gusto. When they hit determined resistance and capable fighters, well, the results weren't good. Like I covered last week, there were defects from word go among the Siberians, but their own successes only made them worse. The main advance on Samara was by General Kanjan's Western Army, and its gains put it well outside the range of the Siberian supply network, forcing it to live off the land which, of course, alienated the locals and was hardly sufficient to keep the army in good order. A lot of this logistical breakdown was self-inflicted. Kolchak was not an especially good administrator, and his government was self-defeatingly corrupt. For example, General Gajda, who commanded the Siberian army on Kanjan’s northern flank, had 45,000 troops at his disposal. He was supposedly being assigned rations for 275,000. And it wasn't like this abundance was reaching the frontline troops either. Gajda's staff was siphoning off the bulk of it and using it to enrich themselves. In a starving country, packets of food were basically gold. Uniforms never left the Siberian capital of Omsk, instead, finding their way to the civilian population who had the money. Meanwhile, the troops at the front made do with disintegrating rags. And the Omsk regime came to rely on the British for supplies, which was managed by the British attaché to the Siberian whites, Major General Alfred Knox. And while they depended on this aid, again, most of it went to the black market. Things got so bad that much of it started making its way to the Red Army, as the whites siphoning off the aid were not terribly scrupulous about who they sold to, Trotsky even sent Knox a thank-you letter for all the help he was sending. He came to be referred to as the Quartermaster General of the Red Army. Kolchak himself was hardly a good example of leadership. Having sent away his family, he lived in Omsk with his mistress, enjoying whatever luxuries he could get his hands on. I haven't touched on the epicenter of white power in Russia since Kolchak took it over, and I might as well before it all came crashing down. Thanks largely to the inflow of Entente funding, the well-off and connected enjoyed long evenings of cocaine and vodka in the vibrant clubs, and for a brief window, Omsk was a city that never slept. Kolchak stacked the ministries with his sycophants and holdovers from the czarist days, and it shouldn't come as a surprise that nothing was accomplished by this regime. The rise of Kolchak also marked the beginning of the end of the Czech presence. While their objectives in fighting in Russia can charitably be described as vague from the get-go, they did have a sense of fighting for a liberal future in the Western mold. Most of the white commanders had previously accepted the provisional government as the status quo to revert back to, even if the details on that were a little murky. Kolchak, on the other hand, was a straight-up dictator. I mean, his title was supreme ruler, for God's sake. The homesick Czechs didn't see his personal power as a cause worth dying for, Over late 1918 and early 1919, they withdrew from the front, opting instead to act as guards for the Trans-Siberian Railway as they made their steady withdrawal east. With them went probably the most combat-effective troops that the anti-Bolsheviks had to offer, though at the time the white Siberians were feeling more confident in themselves and were actually happy to see the arrogant foreigners withdraw themselves. But that wasn't the only internal difficulty, though. Kolchak also continued butting heads with the lingering SRs as well. While as a faction they were incapable of seizing the reins of power themselves, they could still harass Kolchak from the sidelines. While he managed to bring cities heavily influenced by the SRs like Tomsk under his sway, much of the resistance of the SRs was based on the Bolsheviks capitulating to the Germans. Once World War I wound down and that whole thing sorted itself out, The SR started looking at Kolchak as the counter-revolutionary he was, and therefore the real threat. Then there was Semenov and Kalmykov further eastwards. Especially between Kolchak and Semenov, relations were poor, but the petty warlords occupied relatively distant settlements beyond Lake Baikal and were also under Japanese protection. The Japanese, in case you forgot their expedition episodes, were wary of Kolchak as he was perceived as a British agent. And in case you're thinking that's just the Japanese being paranoid in their dislike of the man, the American contingent of the Entente Far Eastern troops despised him as well. They made no distinctions between borderline rogue agents like Semenov and Kolchak and publicly condemned the violence men like them committed in their fiefdoms. The whites took exception to the criticism and in the press within Kolchak's realm, the Americans were demonized. Of course, this was entirely a PR campaign, and it was suggested to the American commander in Vladivostok that such bad press would go away if a couple of connected officers were to receive a significant monthly bribe. Such was the norm in White Siberia. Probably the biggest downfall of Kolchak's government, though, was its inability, or perhaps lack of interest would be a better phrase, to mobilize the population at its disposal. Like other white regimes before him, Kolchak didn't really want to offer a whole lot to the average Russian, even when it could serve him greatly in the short term. Promises in the present meant obligations in the future, and he didn't want to be obligated to the masses. That only got worse as he approached the Volga, with a peasantry that had gained so much land at the expense of the gentry. And he actually thought that just a campaign or two would be enough to stamp out the revolution, so placating them wasn't seen as necessary. The cities along the Trans-Siberian might not have been the industrial heartlands of Russia, but they did have a proletariat, and Kolchak did not trust the workers as he saw them as barely disguised Bolsheviks. The factories were neglected and shut down. Kolchak declined to make use of the czarist gold reserves he'd taken possession of, instead opting to print paper currency, which became worthless. This, in turn, led to the farmers hoarding their grain, waiting for a better time to sell their product, and creating food shortages. This in turn led to the Whites going out into the countryside to requisition grain, which sparked peasant revolts all along the farming communities of Siberia. While Kolchak sent in troops to put down the big uprisings, he was unable to quash the partisan bands that roamed around the thin ribbon of the Trans-Siberian. These were a diverse lot, sometimes disgruntled SRs, sometimes actual Bolsheviks, sometimes even anarchists. They didn't have long-term plans and didn't really consider which side they were on, other than that they opposed the reactionaries in Omsk who were stealing their grain. These resistance movements were focused around Tomsk, which made sense as that was an SR base and a bastion of the anti kolchak sentiment, as well as the Amur Valley, which also made sense as that was among the most distant of Kolchak's possessions and had a strong regional attitude. Regardless of location, the partisans were found mostly among the most recent immigrants to the east, ones who had the least time to establish themselves and therefore were also the most likely to be dislocated. The partisans also were not stupid and realized how vulnerable the Trans-Siberian Railway was. They attacked it relentlessly, sabotaging the tracks and forcing Kolchak to redeploy troops east as the Czechs steadily relinquished their guard duty role the partisans were reinforced by the Red Army troops originally scattered by the Czechs back in the summer of 1918. Remember when I said they fled to the north and south of the railway? Well, they were still there, albeit a little reduced thanks to attrition and desertion, but still very active. Kolchak's response to the resistance was to deploy his troops in terror campaigns, which, let me tell you, did not achieve the desired effect and only inflamed sentiment against him further. Burning villages and shooting a few suspects rarely goes over well, which was going to be very important once he was put on the defensive to the West. So yeah, things weren't going great even before the massive spring offensive. And in retrospect, the whole thing really looked like a roll of the dice dependent on the Reds rolling over and dying, which happened for like a solid month, but then they stopped. And that's where it all went wrong for the Whites. The Red Army fell back onto its bases of supply, regrouped, and got reinforcements. Under Mikhail Frunz, one of the best field commanders of the Civil War, they struck back. As Kanjin's forces advanced on Samara from the direction of Ufa in late April, the Orenburg Cossacks, who had been holding up the far southern flank of the advance, deserted, leaving Frunz an easy opportunity to strike at his suddenly exposed flank. Again, I wish I could describe to you some intricate battles, some cunning display of military genius or special heroism, but there wasn't. The decisive force was the simple calculus of one army being exhausted, starving, poorly led, and with no reserves, while the Red Army was the inverse of that at the moment. Frunze's attack with fresh troops crumbled Kanjin's western army and sent it fleeing. There was no plan for a retreat, no logistics in place to get everybody back east to a prepared position, and there were no fresh troops to bring up, a consequence of not getting the larger population on board. There simply wasn't anything to retreat to beyond hundreds of miles of open ground and hostile cities. And so, the white armies disintegrated, many deserting, some fleeing east, very few intending to fight again. It was terribly anticlimactic, given how much of a scare Kolchak had given the Bolsheviks over the winter and spring. On June 9, 1919, UFO was taken, and with it the primary supply depot of the whites on the western side of the Urals. The Siberian army under Gajda on the northern flank was still advancing, but he was now dangerously exposed and moving through heavily forested country without many waystations. Plus, he was far enough out of the way that any advance in his sector wouldn't really accomplish anything. His plan was to link up with the Entente up at Archangel, but that wouldn't change the situation. They'd just get the pleasure of saying hello to their allies, and the overall situation would remain the same. The objective should have been concentrating and marching with every available force on Moscow, but the Whites opted for a broad front strategy all across the Volga that committed all their armies and in doing so exhausted all their armies simultaneously. The Whites were consigned to six months of disintegration in the east. Even the energetic Gajda couldn't hold his army together under the strain of red counterattacks. Far from his bases, his troops were pushed back. Perm was lost on July 3rd, and on the 15th, Yekaterinburg on the other side of the Urals fell. The Northern Red Army, pursuing Gajda, swung south to Chelyabinsk. There was one attempt to outflank and encircle that force, as it had advanced hundreds of miles in only a few weeks and was itself badly isolated and exhausted. But the trap never sprung shut. While white forces were arrayed around Chelyabinsk to assail the Reds from all directions, the soldiers refused to move. The white troops were simply too demoralized and disorganized to counterattack, even against opponents who themselves had overstretched themselves. The remnants of the white forces slipped behind the Tobol River, deep in Siberia. The main conflict for the Bolsheviks at this point was an internal one over strategy. Trotsky and the Red Army's commander-in-chief, General Facetus, were hesitant to pursue too far into Siberia, fearing the exact same cycle of overextension and collapse that had plagued both sides for the entire civil war. They were opposed by the overall commander of the Eastern Front, Sergei Kamenev, no relation to Lev Kamenev, the old Bolshevik. Kamenev had the ear of Lenin and promised him that he could dispatch Kolchak entirely. Lenin, for his part, was desperate to start closing down some of the fronts of the civil war, while the Bolsheviks absolutely had superior human resources the home front was taking a beating, something I'm going to start covering very soon. The war couldn't go on forever, so Lenin overruled his chiefs, dismissed Vesetas, and placed Kamenev in charge of the Red Army. Kamenev, as even Trotsky would later admit, was right on the money and delivered on its promises of total victory in the East. Kolchak and the Siberian Whites were done for. They were now isolated in Asia and on the run. Though amusingly, word of the scale of the disasters was slow in getting out, and the OMS government's distance was such that most of the world press reported that they would be back on their feet in no time. In fact, during the summer, as his armies were in total retreat, Kolchak enjoyed increasing recognition as the legitimate leader of Russia. In reality, the only task left to his government was to manage the retreat and evacuations east as best they could, which, as it turned out, their best wasn't very good. This was when the partisan movement in the countryside reached full bloom as the White Army fell apart. Armed bands would especially target wooden bridges along the Trans-Siberian and burn them, creating bottlenecks as the Omsk government had to scramble precious resources to repairing their only effective means of transport over Siberia. Kolchak did sack most of his leaders, including Kanjin and Gajda. Gajda especially got into it with the admiral on July 12th, as Kolchak accused him of being an SR— Gajda retorted that the reactionary government was half the reason why they were on the edge of defeat. Kolchak questioned Gajda's credentials as a military commander, which was fair. Gajda, five years earlier, had been posing as a position during World War I. Gajda pointed out Kolchak at best commanded a flotilla on the Black Sea, so he wasn't exactly capable either, which was also fair. Kolchak dismissed him, and within a month, Gajda left Omsk and was heading out to the Far East. He was lucky to get out in one piece, as over his journey to Vladivostok, he witnessed the damage done by partisan attacks. The Tobol River line did not prove to be a solid defensive position, and by autumn the Red Army was bearing down on Omsk. Their advance had mostly been slowed by the familiar lack of supplies after having crossed such vast distances. By this time, the Whites only held the Trans-Siberian. Most all the surrounding areas were held by partisans. Refugees packed into Omsk, and a city that usually had 120,000 people in it swelled to over a half million. There simply was no logistical way to get everybody out, and the Entente officials had precedence on using the railway. All the attachés, advisers, and Czechs were making their way out, causing terrible resentment among the whites as not only were they left behind, but their own means of escape was being commandeered. By November 8th, the foreign contingent had left. Kolchak himself decamped to Irkutsk but much of his government wasn't so lucky and couldn't get out in time. With the railway booked solid, many had to take the risky path of the road networks running parallel to the rail line. This was terribly dangerous as the cold was setting in, there was still no food or adequate clothing to be had, and the travelers were wide-open targets to the partisans. Going into the next year, around a million people would die crossing the terrible expanse of Siberia eastward, Fleeing towards what they had to have known were only dubiously safe harbors at best. The Red Army entered Omsk on November 14, 1919, with the forward echelon having covered 150 miles in just two days. It was early morning, and the remaining garrison was still asleep, so there was no battle. The fall of the city signaled the onset of white mutinies. On the 16th, General Gajda, still hanging around in the Far East, attempted a coup in Vladivostok with some 300 men, but they were quickly dispersed, those electing to fight being executed. Gajda being a Czech was his only salvation, as while the local legionnaires didn't take part, they did protect him, but he was done once and for all in Russia. Weeks after that, the white troops who had wound up around Tomsk also mutinied, followed by a shadowy appearance of an SR group known as the Political Center, which seized towns between Krasnoyarsk and Irkutsk, Kolchak by this time really didn't have a lot of options, and even fewer friends, and proceeded to antagonize the Czechs for the last time by forbidding them to leave Russia on December 24th. Nice little uh, Christmas gift there. This order was never actually carried out as nobody cared enough about Kolchak's orders, and nobody was going to pick a fight with the Czechs, who were in full-on get-out mode. That same day, the garrison and civilians of Arkutsk turned against him and threw down his government welcoming the political center as their new leaders. The admiral himself was on a train 250 miles to the west at the time, which was to say between the Reds and the mutinous Whites. Semenov attempted to send some armored trains to Irkutsk from the east to take the city back, but the town's garrison repulsed him. Given their mutual amenity, I doubt Semenov was broken up about his failure to save Kolchak. Kolchak only had with him the last contingent of Czechs west of Lake Baikal, which, yes, they were still trying to save him even after his Christmas stunt, mostly as a favor to the Entente, which had supported him. He also had the Russian treasury still with him. Remember I mentioned he refused to spend any of it, preferring to print money. So he had a trainload of over a billion rubles in gold, securities, and gems, none of which he had seen fit to spend in order to run his own government. Negotiations were made to try and get the political center to just let him pass and exit Russia with a shred of dignity. To facilitate that, on January 4, 1920, Kolchak resigned his position as supreme ruler and placed himself in the custody of the Czechs. That way, just in case he had any second thoughts, he would be in good hands. The Treasury was also placed in the possession of the Czechs as well. He transferred command in two directions: to Danikin in the west and Semenov in the east. Semenov took that as his cue to declare himself ruler of Siberia, which, yeah, glad to see somebody with a little optimism. Semenov promptly decided to pick a fight with the Czechs by sending some armored trains once again towards Irkutsk, but wound up just losing four of those said trains. The Czechs passed into his territory and out of Siberia at the point of a gun, disarming thousands of his soldiers as they were rightfully considered untrustworthy. A bigger issue for the Czechs as they left was the presence of Kolchak himself. One of Kolchak's officers had taken prisoners during the Irkutsk uprising and took them to Lake Baikal on January 8th and had them drowned. This proved to be bad for his boss as now the political center was demanding Kolchak be transferred to them. The Czechs finally washed their hands of him once and for all as it looked like their passage would be blocked. And along with the treasury, Kolchak was turned over on January 14th. The political center were not insane and knew the Red Army was coming, and figured their way of getting in good with the Bolsheviks was to turn over the treasury. Kolchak, though, was going to be theirs, and on February 7th, he was executed. Two weeks later, the Red Army properly entered Urkutsk. The political center, for their part, dissolved themselves, and other Siberian faction thrown onto the scrap heap. East of Lake Baikal, there were still white strongholds, but with their leader gone, they had no prospect of a comeback. And while usually I would change the topic or wrap up for the week and save the 1920 events for later, there really wasn't a whole lot left to Siberia to take note of in the years that followed. So instead, I'm just going to sketch out the denouement this episode so I don't have to come back to this region. The main sticking point to the Bolshevik advance going forward was not white resistance, but the presence of the Japanese army, which, if you listen to episode 59 you are already well aware that they were determined to keep it to a painfully slow retreat over the course of years, even as their Entente allies made for the exits. The Red Army had demonstrated it could handle the white armies of the Civil War, but they hesitated against a proper army like the Japanese. But before the Japanese, there were still scattered captains of the whites. All over the Far East and Siberia, past Lake Baikal, the remaining officers scrambled to consolidate whatever petty realms and cities they could lay claim to with whatever troops they could grab. That winter and spring were hard ones for the local populace, as all the miseries experienced further to the west were compounded by a total collapse of anything close to order. Brigands were everywhere, and even the presumed authorities in the vast, frozen region were more interested in looting their own holdings or that of their perceived rivals. The cold, dark air of the nights were broken by the sound of the gunfire of countless skirmishes around isolated villages. Anyone who could get their hands on a few rifles could set themselves up as a local chieftain, and many did. The Japanese might have increasingly turned its troops towards being direct occupiers by this time, but they were hardly nation builders and allowed local authorities to create their own governments with many turning towards the remnants of the local zemstvos and usually carried an SR tilt. The appearance of moderately socialist local governments spelt the end of Adam and Kalmykov's reign of terror in Khabarovsk. Most of Kalmykov's forces had deserted him, and two groups of local partisans were bearing down on him from the west and the south. For old time's sake, he looted Khabarovsk, his own capital for over a year, and fled on February 12, 1920, being replaced by yet another moderate socialist government. He made it to China on the 17th and was taken in by the authorities. For his hand in an incident involving the murder of foreign Red Cross workers, he was a wanted man and he tried to escape his apprehension. After his second attempt at escaping, his Chinese escorts simply shot him. Elsewhere, the isolated townships north of the Trans-Siberian and outside the reach of the Japanese turned Bolshevik, providing ample bases for the Red Aligned partisans. This left the most western extremity of the white movement, being Semenov's group, still based in Cheetah. His salvation lay with the fact that the Japanese were adamant about not letting the Red Army advance further, which got Lenin and Trotsky thinking, and eventually led them to creating the Far Eastern Republic, the FER. I talked about the FER briefly back in episode 59, but in case you missed that episode, it was a government designed in Moscow to unify all the various moderate, socialist, and Bolshevik governments under one banner in the territories east of Lake Baikal. It was a clever bit of politicking by the Bolsheviks, as it undermined the old white officers by presenting a much more representative government as an alternative. Not to say that the scattered cities automatically went over to the new government, but when presented with that option or, say, someone like Semenov, well, the choice kind of made itself. Lenin's hope was that the FER would prepare the way for Bolshevik rule when the Japanese eventually left, and its spread meant that the Red Army proper didn't have to divert resources to taking the region, which, even with their recent successes, was still a huge area to take over, and 1920 was the year that Moscow would have to confront Poland on the exact opposite side of Russia. The establishment of the FER on April 6, 1920 was also fortuitous timing, as the Americans had left on April 1st, leaving Japan as the only Entente presence in the region. Initially, they tried to squash this perceived tool of Moscow, and through force of arms, establish their own occupation from Vladivostok to Khabarovsk, installing whites more to their liking. But facing mounting resistance and having to reckon with their own diminishing troop numbers, the Japanese brokered a truce with the FER in July 1920 that gave the Republic a free hand west of Kabarovsk. This opened the door for the FER to strike against Semenov and Cheetah, who was now very isolated. Red forces in the region under the FER banner had been attempting to root out Semenov during the spring and summer, but didn't have a great deal of luck. The July agreement with the Japanese changed all that though, and suddenly Semenov's aid was cut off. He had the gall to try and parlay with the FER in September, attempting to convince them that he could be its military leader and even went so far as to transfer Cheetah and the surrounding area's governance over to a civilian government, at least on paper. But the FER leadership didn't have any of it. Red troops entered Cheetah on October 20th, and Semenov's troops, running out of munitions and having been worn down, fell away. Semenov scuttled off to Manchuria, where he'd continue working with the Japanese, but never on anything of significance. The only item of business left in the Far East afterwards was the long drawdown of the Japanese and years of negotiations over their exit. I already covered this, in as much detail as can be endured in episode 59, so I won't cover it here. There weren't any great battles or intrigues, just a slow withdrawal by the Japanese and the Whites being forced to follow along with them towards Vladivostok. White troops would put up resistance in the last six months, but the civil war in the Far East was long since decided. And when the Japanese finally exited in November 1922, so did what was left of the Whites. The FER, its purpose served, disbanded and joined what was soon to be renamed the Soviet Union on November 15, 1922. I could eulogize the Eastern Front of the Russian Civil War here, but I'd rather do it all in one go later. There are still other fronts to be dealt with, after all, and I intend to wrap up the bulk of the fighting next week. On the docket are the last stages of the Entente Intervention to the North, the White advance on Petrograd from Estonia and Novgorod, and, of course, Denikin's invasion from southern Russia, which itself almost broke the Red Army, until reversal of fortune set in, and it didn't. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>